0: We are now moving on to a completely different section. This is the divided kingdom. This is chapters 12 through 16. This division tells of how the kingdom is going to split into two kingdoms. Now here's the other thing that's interesting. This kingdom has been splitting for a long time. When David went on the run from Saul, and he took care of Judah more than he did any of the other tribes, and Judah took care of him more than they did any of the other tribes... And then when he came back, and he came back to Judah way too late after Saul had died, and he didn't take the kingdom like he was supposed to, and then he allowed Job to treat the northern Kingdom's, tribes like that, the split was happening. When he allowed Absalom to win the hearts of the north against him, but he kept favoring Judah. Okay, when, Saul, when, when, um, when Solomon's going to oppress the ten tribes more than he's going to oppress Judah, the favoritism of Judah, of David and Solomon has been leading to this division for a long time but God has been keeping the division from happening because of his covenant faithfulness but now that Israel is being disobedient they're now invoking the covenant curses and so now God is going to allow what we created. and this is that unique tension of God is making the kingdom split but humans and their failure to do the right thing is what led to the kingdom split and this is where the bible makes it very clear that humans have free choice and they have been responsible for making this happen but at the same time god make it happen and god doesn't try to resolve the tension for you we like to say is it calvinism and Arminianism?" and yahweh says yes You have free choice and responsible for your choices, and I will hold you to that. But I'll make it, but I also made it happen. This is why Joseph says, What you intended for evil, God intended for good. You are the ones who sold me, but God also wanted you to sell me. You're going to be punished for selling me. This is why Peter says, You killed Jesus. And then God sent his son to die. And you're like, how do those both work? Because it's God. And this is both human and Yahweh making this kingdom split. So chapter 12, verse 1. Rehoboam is the new son. Rehoboam traveled to Shechem. For all of Israel had gathered in Shechem to make Rehoboam king. Now this is a smart move. Shechem is up here. It's in the heart of the northern tribes. Why he goes there, I don't know, but he still has the advisors of Solomon. And there's my guess is that this is a politically strategic place. If you're beginning to sense disrest in your kingdom, then it might be good to move it into their territory, their coronation. Right now, everybody feels like Judah has claim to the king. But if you can make your coronation happen in the territory, this is like the president getting inaugurated in the state that had the least amount of votes for him. They give them some kind of an ownership. Like, oh, he came to us. He's our president too. And he's, There could be a sense he's trying to win, but then he like completely screws it up. If that is his goal, I don't know. That would be the intelligent political move. But then he screws it all up when he gets there. It's like giving really good advice of how to talk to a girl, and then you finally get to her, and you screw it all up. When Jeroboam, son of Nabat, heard the news, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon and had been living there ever since. They sent for him, and Jeroboam, the whole Israelite assembly, came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, "'Your father made us work too hard.' Now, if you lighten the demands he made and don't make us work as hard, we will serve you. He said to them, go away for three days, then return to me. So the people went away. So basically, there's a lot of people that are upset with Solomon. Enough that, can you imagine the entire crowd at the inauguration of Trump stand up and say, Hey, stop, before you do anything else, life has sucked pretty bad. And they're voicing their thing, their, their, their complaints. That's unheard of in a, president, a presidential country, a democracy, a republic, whatever you want to call us now, let alone in a monarchy where the king doesn't really care what the people think. Rehoboam says, let me think about it. King Rehoboam consulted with the older advisors who had served his father Solomon when he had been alive. So he's going to wise men who've been around for a long time and seen a lot of things. He asked them, how do you advise me to answer these people? And they said to him, today if you show a willingness to help these people and grant their requests, they will be your servants for, from this time forward. So they give great advice. Give them bonuses. Lighten the load. Relent a little bit. What's more important to you, Rehoboam? A nation that loves you? is relational with you, who we're all comrades and brothers, or is it your, your father's wealth, your father's empire, making another ton of gold? <laughs> the advisors say, your father screwed up the end of his life. Now, here's why they say this, because they're older now, and the guy that they had to please is now dead, and now they're kind of at the age where they're like, you can fire me all they want. I've already saved my 401k. Okay, I'm good. <laughs> I don't care about doing what the boss wants all the time or saying the right things all the time. I'm going to speak my mind. I'll be loyal and I'll be biblical and I'll be godly and loving, but I'm going to speak my mind because the worst you're going to do is fire me. <laughs> and it doesn't matter to me as much. And they tell them, They tell them. But Railbone rejected their advice. And consulted his advisors, young advisors who served with him who he had grown up with. So this word young is that same word used of like little boys, but this is actually an insult to the narrator. They're actually they're not literally boys, because we know that Rayo Bowman's in his forties at this time, and these kids grew up with him, so they're in their thirties and forties with him. But the narrator calls them boys. Because they're immature like boys. They did not grow up and become a man and leave childish things behind. And so the narrator's insulting them, not actually factually describing them as boys. These are the young punk kids that he grew up with. These are his frat boyfriends that they all care about as their own glory and their own privileges and their own entertainment. And they're like, no, no, no. You've got to be a man. And they're going to give the definition of manhood that we saw at the very beginning. Notice that Solomon did not pass off a legacy or a good biblical definition of manhood to his son. Because at the end of his life, he didn't have a definition that was biblical or godly like David. David screwed up a lot, but at least he finished well. Solomon didn't. say that, Now, notice too, he automatically... Is going to take their advice because he's to the advisors, the older advisor says, advise me. But to his friends, he says, What should we do? There's we're the same, we're alike, we're in this together. These old guys, I just did it because I kind of felt like I had to, but I had no intention of doing what they wanted. They said, say this to the people who gave who have said this to you. Your father made us work hard. But now lighten your burden. Say this to them. I am a lot harsher than my father. My father imposed heavy demands on you. I will make them even heavier. My father punished you with ordinary whips. I will punish you with whips and really sting your flesh. This is male machoism. Don't let them see you weak. If you lighten the low, they'll think you're pathetic and they won't respect you and they'll rock wide over you. If you think my father was bad, wait till you get a load of me. He is using fear tactics in order to impress upon them. Jeroboam and all the people reported to Rehoboam on the third day, just as the king had ordered when he had said, Return to me on the third day. The king responded to the people harshly. He rejected the advice of the older men and followed the advice of the young ones. He said, my father imposed heavy demands on you. I will make them even heavier. My father punished you with ordinary whips. I will punish you with the whips of scorpions. Now, whips of scorpion was actually a type of whip. It's not like he's saying, I'm going to use scorpions and hit you with them or try to chase you like a little boy in kindergarten, try to sting you. It was a a multi-leather strapped whip that had things tied into it. That was the scorpion. The king refused to listen to the people because Yahweh instigated this turn of events. Now this is interesting. God is almost guiding him and taking the bad advice so that this would all happen in that way. Not to get crass or anything, but when he says, my little finger is bigger than my father's waist, that is not actually what he's saying in the Hebrew. What he's saying is that he's using the word loins. And the loins is a euphemism for the male genitalia. And so what he's saying is, is my thing is bigger than my father's thing. And that's the implication. And that is totally worldly. I mean, we've seen that a lot in movies, that idea, and it's a crass, crass, really offensive, inappropriate thing that shows up in movies all the time. Um, Yet it's been around for a long time. And what God is playing here is, yes, a lot of times this gets re-translated because that doesn't go over well in our churches, in our sin school classes, and our sermons. <laughs> but at the same time, is, God put it there. And God didn't put it there because he was trying to be inappropriate and crash and harsh and he's like some inappropriate old man with crude jokes. He's putting it there because he's telling you, I want you to know what this guy's like. This is what he thinks like. Yes, it's offensive. Yes, it's crass. Yes, they don't really enjoy watching movies like that. But yet, at the same time, it reveals the character of these people really quickly, really quickly. And so God puts it in here completely uncensored, and he does not blush or apologize to the congregation for what he said. Because he says, I want you to know what Ray really like. He is male machoism, frat boy to the core. And he speaks this way. He's a politician leading the people of God. He's the image of God that's supposed to be a light and an image and like reflection of God's character. And he's talking like this publicly in front of everybody, man, woman, and child. And he's not blushing, apologizing, or caring about it. This is what he's like. Why is he like this? Because Solomon had bad priorities as a father and probably hardly ever invested himself in Rehoboam with 1,000 wives and all the children that came with them. He had no father figure. And Rehoboam is a frat boy, and God wants you to know that. So God allows this to happen. He allows this to happen because he wants his kingdom to split. When all of Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, the people answered the king, we have no portion in David, no share in the son of Jesse. It's the exact same thing that the followers of Sheba said when they rebelled against David. When Absalom rebelled against David and the kingdom became weakened, before David even could get back to Jerusalem and take the throne, Sheba rebelled against David. And Sheba said, we have no share in the tents of David, no belonging to the house of Jesse. And he led a bunch of people And rebellion against them. And now the exact same thing is being said. And the narrator wants you to know that. Now this is the sad part. Now look after your own dynasty, O David. This is the only dynasty that has an unconditional covenant with God. And yet Solomon's actions have caused the people to walk away from that. To rebel against that. To see nothing good in it. The greatest travesty of this all is that Solomon was supposed to be an image to his people, a blessing to his people, they were supposed to know Yahweh better, looking at him than they could have ever in any other way, and yet all they see is there's nothing beneficial to Judah at all. I don't want any part of Judah yet Judah is the unconditional covenant we have no We have no inheritance with Judah. But Judah is Jesus Christ and the inheritance of salvation. They're walking away from the things of God because they don't see the things of God in this tribe of Judah. That would be the greatest fear. One of the greatest fears I have is people saying, I walked away from God because of you. I saw nothing beneficial in God because of you. Now, granted, I can't. There are some people who are going to say that just because they're hard-hearted. But to have a legitimate claim in saying that. So Israel returned to their homes. Rehoboam continued to rule over Israelites who lived in the cities of Judah. And King Rehoboam sent Adoniram, the supervisor of the forced labor that Solomon had put into power, after them, and but all of Israel stoned him to death. So they all go back to Israel, and they probably stop serving. A strike. And so Rehoboam says, well, I'll show you. I'll send my forced labor supervisors and foremen to oppress you even harder. But then they just rose up and stoned them and killed them. So Rehoboam says, I'll show you. I'm going to bring my entire army. The army that has never, ever been used before against anyone. Because God blessed Israel so much. Until it started to have to defend Solomon from all the internal rebellions that started happening because Solomon wasn't following God and God allowed it to happen. And now he's going to use that well-equipped army to wipe out his own people. You see, what happens is the the the, the change and the compromise is gradual, gradual, gradual. And there's a crack in the dam and another crack in the dam. and A little water sprays out. A little, and you're like, oh, this is all in control. And eventually you just can't handle enough and things are just enough pressure and things have happened just so much that, bam, it just explodes. And within one year or a couple months, you go from pretty comfortable lives to everything in a hellish state because there are way too many cracks to deal with anymore. And we need to be careful of that. We need to be careful of that. I think we often think like, I've heard a lot of people say, well, it doesn't really matter because I'll be dead by the time anything like that happens in America. Your children! Like how self-centered is that that you don't even care about what your children are going to be living in? But it may. I mean, remember what happened to Nazi Germany. Everything was pretty good and then bam. All of a sudden you have the extermination of Jews happening overnight practically and a bunch of other things. And it all built up over time. But it didn't burst until a certain event. King Rehoboam managed to jump into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So he came down with his army and he fled. Or he came down with his chariots and he fled. So Israel has been in rebellion against the Davidic dynasty to this very day. When all of Israel heard that Jeroboam had been returned, they summoned him to the assembly and made him king over all of Israel. Remember, this is okay because God made him. Now, are they making him king because God made him king? I don't know. But it's okay for him to be king because he was chosen by God. No one except the tribe of Judah remained loyal to the Davidic dynasty. When Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he summoned 180,000 skilled warriors from all of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin to attack Israel and restore the kingdom to Rehoboam's son of Solomon. But God told Shemaiah, the prophet, Say this to King Rehoboam, son of Solomon of Judah, and to all of Judah and Benjamin, as well as the rest of the people. Yahweh says this, Do not attack and make war with your brothers, the Israelites. Each of you go home, for I have caused this to happen. They obeyed Yahweh and went home as Yahweh had ordered them to do. Now this is actually a good mark for him. No matter how corrupt and how frat boy he is, And no matter how he's in the wrong, he at least obeyed the word of the prophet. Now, we don't know why he obeyed the word of the prophet. But the word of the prophet came and he stopped and he turned around and he went home. However, what we're going to find at the end of his reign, he did not keep obeying the prophet. Eventually, he's going to change his mind, come back and begin to attack Israel. So it only lasted for so long. Here's the sad thing. As Americans, we don't really think of our ancestors and our descendants a whole lot in legacies. I mean, maybe that begins to change when you become a grandparent, but I know as a a whole as Americans, we don't start life. We don't start our family thinking about what legacy do I come from and what legacy I'm going to continue. What cycles am I going to break? What things am I going to emphasize in our family? Like. What is bad that I need to break? What is good? So my wife and I did this marriage class that was actually really awesome and phenomenal. But it really looked into legacies. And I've been recently listening to this like dad podcast on how to be a better father. And um and this guy has like spent a lot of time in Israel where they do think of legacies a lot. And they pass things down. And he was just talking about how like we often hit the reset button. Like we we get married and we hit the reset, we start all over with our family. And then we have kids and they grow up and they get married and they hit the reset button they start all over with their family. He says in Israel, one of the reasons that the Jews hold most of the wealth, a lot of the wealth in America, um, the Jewish people in America are the, some of the wealthiest people, is not because they're corrupt or evil or bad like Hitler said, but because when some people are like, oh, if you put away like $5 every like, month or something like that you'll have like a million dollars when you're retired. most people are like who cares i'm too old by then to use it i don't care but a jewish father's thinking sign me up because he's thinking i'm going to pass it off to my child and then they're going to keep adding to that and pass it off to their child and they're going to pass and they're thinking about not only traditions like the festivals of yahweh that they've been doing in forever not only their finances that they've been saving up multi-generational and that kind of stuff All that kind of stuff and lots of things that they really do think about. What kind of life am I going to prepare for my kids? And that's what's so sad here. David left a really good legacy for Solomon. David left a really good legacy for Solomon. He wasn't perfect. He was flawed. He screwed up. We all are. We're all (laughs) going to pass down things that are messed up and things that are good. But overall, at the end of his life, David said... Yahweh's made a great covenant with us. You're, you're king only because of the covenant that God has made with us. Be a man. Keep his commandments. Obey him. Solomon transitioned with very little violence. And only the violence that he had was because of his own hand. Now at the end of Solomon's life, this is what he's handed his son. He's hand, he, he, has, he is the new pharaoh. And he has handed forced labor, bitterness, oppression, harshness, frat boy mentality, all to his son. And there's no advice from the father to the son when the throne transitions. And the son's completely on his own and his own immaturity. And he doesn't even know God well enough because of his 1,000 pagan wives or mothers. And he doesn't go to God and say, I'm ignorant. I need help. He goes to his frat boy friends and says, What should we do? The legacy that Solomon has handed his son is horrible and has literally set him up for complete and utter failure. And the failure is not the financial one here, the failure is the moral bankruptcy. Because financially speaking, he's set but morally speaking and spiritually speaking is incredibly bankrupt. And this is the thing that we need to be careful of too, is what legacy am I passing to my children? Traditions, are they about moral and spiritual wealth? The home that I've created, was it about the way I decorated it or the environment that I created for them? The words that came out of my mouth, Were they about get a job so you can make good money? Or was it about expanding the kingdom of God? These are the things that we need to think about as we speak to the next generation. Am I setting them up for financial success or spiritual success? For material, corporate success, or spiritual success? To expand our own empire or the kingdom of God? How do I speak in? To the next generation. David screwed up a lot. There's probably a lot of things that Solomon could say that my dad was not good at. And I need therapy for. But, overall, David tried to pass off a legacy of spiritual wealth. And Solomon inherited it and did really well. But he screwed off. And he passed off spiritual bankruptcy to his son. Because he allowed the world to become more attractive to him than the things of God. And that's what we need to be careful of. Sometimes comfort in America can be persecution just as much as torture. It's a persecution that leads to apathy and inactive relationships and dependency on God.